my name is Nicole Sparaza. I'm a solo practitioner in the Denver metro area, and I'm honored to be your host for this limited series podcast in honor of Asian American Pacific Islander Month. As a quick roadmap, we'll be using some abbreviations throughout this podcast, one of which is APABA Colorado, which stands for the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Colorado, as well as SABACO, which is the South Asian Bar Association of Colorado. We will also be using other short terms such as APALSA, which is the Asian Pacific American Law Students Association, APDC, which is the Asian Pacific Development Center, and we will also be using other terms such as APA, which stands for Asian Pacific American, AAPI, or API, which is Asian American Pacific Islander, and BIOPIC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. Welcome to the next installment of AAPI Heritage Month for this limited podcast. Today, I have with me Kenzo Kawanabe, who is a partner at Davis Graham Stubbs, also a former president of APABA Colorado, and is just a trailblazer in our legal community, in the APA community, in our profession, and I am thrilled to have him with me. Thank you, Kenzo, for joining me. Oh, you bet, Nicole. It is great to be here with you. So I guess I just want to have a conversation with you, learn more about you, and talk a little bit about, um, I guess we can start with your family. Tell sure. me about your family. Yeah. I know you have a long history. Well, uh, so um, I love Colorado. I'm a fourth generation Coloradan. I grew up in the San Luis Valley. So I historically had a farming family, although with my dad being an architect and, and my mom uh, being more of an, an accountant, um, uh, it wasn't necessarily growing up on the farm. We lived in the in the big town of ten thousand. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say, my mother's side of the family um, suffered the internment camps, and so my mom's parents, so my grandparents, were living in California, American citizens. Right, my mm-hmm. grandmother. I think she was um, in the hair or hairstylist business. My grandfather uh, was was a photographer, as I'm told. He died before before I was born, and um, and they were forced, like tens of thousands of Japanese Americans, into internment camps. So they had to pack up, leave their lives, their home in California, uh, and they were shipped off to a camp in Arizona, all because of their race. Uh, and yeah. as we now know. Uh, no Japanese American was ever convicted of mm-hmm. any sabotage or espionage in World War II, uh, but the U.S. government thought that the Japanese Americans uh, were a threat, and mm-hmm. I would say it was based on racism. And so that is the power, I, su- I suppose, of the government, and what was supposed to save my grandparents uh, and other Japanese Americans was the rule of law. And I think that was an example of where the rule of law failed, mm-hmm. where the rule of law that is a cornerstone of our democracy that is supposed to protect us and treat us equally simply failed. And I think there is a realization, uh, and now I realize it more than than certainly I did in high school, about about the power and importance of the rule of law. But the rule of law itself, um, they're just words. And unless you have people, including lawyers, acting to support and enforce the rule of law, uh, then justice can't be done. Right. And so I like to think that's how lawyers make a difference. Did you know much about your family's history when you were growing up? Because I've talked with some people who, you know, it was more 
the name of the game was assimilation. It was, you know, kind of sweeping it under the rug, really, you know, trying to assimilate into the American culture and not stand out as much as you could. And some of the people that I've talked to didn't even know really that many details about their family history until college projects or, you know, some type of, um, some type of project where they had to dig a little deeper. You know, I think um, my grandma Grace, who has passed, uh, loved grandma Grace. She did not uh, talk about it very much. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was a college project uh, of (laughs) three brothers. And so brother number two, Seiji, um, it was either a high school or college project where he interviewed my grandmother and and I think brought out more of the information than, than I had known. Um, so uh, I knew um, you know, th- uh, their experience in the internment camps happened. I didn't know the details mm-hmm. uh, of what actually happened and, and still don't know, know the details of, of sort of what actually happened. And I think that is similar to um, uh, many who uh, know or have relatives that suffered the internment camps is that uh, after the internment camps, despite the horrific injustice of it all, uh, many moved on to that next step. And so my grandparents uh, moved from Arizona. I think they spent a little bit of time in Illinois. I'm not positive on that. Oh, and ultimately, yep, ultimately um, moved to Hawaii. And so my grandmother, my grandmother moved the family back to Hawaii. And, and so my mom grew up in sort of the Honolulu area attended high school in Honolulu and and ultimately came out to Colorado for college. So I think that is a similar experience where Japanese Americans, many of them in the internment camps, for various reasons, uh, perhaps shame being one of them, even though I I don't think there was necessarily a basis for that shame, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't talk about it much, uh, decided to try and close that chapter and move on. Uh, and and start rebuilding their lives and 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 going towards that American dream, uh, which in part worked out if I look back uh, on my life. But what was lost, I suppose, is is the rush to assimilate, and this isn't just for Japanese Americans. Uh, also means perhaps not recognizing some of the culture where you came from, mm-hmm. and so I, I wished that uh, I knew more Japanese. I I don't, uh, and so. My, um, my dad and my mom know much more Japanese than I do. And, and so that, that's part of sort of what assimilation was, I think, um, back in that generation. I will say, though, that uh, years later, uh, there were reparations. And so there was a movement within the Japanese-American community and greater community to recognize the injustice of the internment camps, pass legislation, which actually led to reparations from the U.S. government. Right. So admitting that they were wrong, mm-hmm. um, paying money to those who suffered the internment camps with an apology. Uh, and so I, I think I think while many who suffered those internment camps didn't necessarily talk about it, uh, those same people helped helped power uh, the reparations movement, which which I think was important mm-hmm. for the Japanese American community. Absolutely. And also a recognition of what happened during that time. Yeah. And to me, it, it's uh, in part recognition, but it's, it's also don't bury the mistakes we've made in the past. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you can't learn from them, right? It, is, it isn't a story to constantly tell to remind someone of the mistakes they've made. It's a story to tell so that we learn from that story and don't repeat that mistake. I heard you touch a little bit on shame and... 
it's something that I'd like to talk a little bit more about because I feel like shame is something that is the thread between all of us because I think it's tied also to the concept of being an other and not belonging. Um, I think it's tied to the concept of not wanting to rock the boat sometimes and still not being able to avoid incidences of racism or acts of violence and things of that nature. I think shame is a really prevalent emotion and feeling among Asian American Pacific Islanders. And it sounds like your family kind of experienced a little bit of that with regards to the internment camp and wanting to assimilate. And is that something that you also dealt with when you were growing up? You know, I, I don't know if, if it was shame. I mean, so here's my perspective. And, and certainly uh, shame exists in, in many, many cultures, right? And so just from a baseline level, uh, you know, there's there's sort of a saying in, in many Asian, Asian American cultures of don't bring shame to your family, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a motivator of remember that it's more than just yourself. And so uh, it can be overused, but at the same time, I think there's a positive theme in that where, uh, where it's, it's more than you. It's, it's your family, your family name. And so realize that you know, uh, the, the, the pride and the, your hard work helps extend that sort of family name. And so uh, I'm guessing, Nicole, that's uh, a theme you might be familiar with. <laughs> it is yeah. a theme that I'm intimately, <laughs> intimately aware of. <laughs> and, and perhaps we, we try not to put that theme in that sort of magnitude on our kids, perhaps, or, or maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we phrase it a little differently. So, um, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that shame is, is all bad. Um, I, I don't know with my, my grandmother, for example, so, sort of, how she felt or why she didn't tell me those stories of the internment camp. So to me, I never asked her. And so I can't say that, that it was shame, for example, that drove her not to talk about it. But I, I do think that there certainly must have been some element of, of shame, of feeling like, um, you know, maybe we did something wrong, mm -hmm. uh, even though I will say now uh, that they did not do something wrong, that they were victims of racism. Now, today, I think it's a much more complicated issue where I think throughout history, our complicated history, uh, there is a theme of yellow peril. And so mm -hmm. there is, at times, racism or acts of violence that are directed at Asian Americans, not just Asian Americans, but the yellow peril relates to Asian Americans as sort of a, you cannot trust uh, Asian Americans, or they bring bad things from the countries where their ancestors came from. Uh, and, you, and you've seen that with the Exclusion Act of the Chinese in the 1880s, uh, the internment camps that I mentioned in the 1940s, the killing of Vincent Chin back in the 1970s, mm -hmm. and today, yeah. uh, where you have an over 100% increase in hate incidents against Asian Americans, falsely tied to uh, what some may label coronavirus or COVID as the China flu or the Kung flu, uh, and that's terrible. But it's not an isolated incident. It's part of this history where I think Asian Americans are sometimes starkly reminded that some view our citizenship, our loyalty as conditional, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which uh, is wrong, in my opinion. It is, you know, it's not conditional. I am 100% uh, American, proud of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but others' perceptions of whether I belong versus whether they can tell me or someone that looks like me, Asian American, to go back to where you came from. And mm -hmm. in my mind, that's to, to Southern Colorado. That doesn't make any sense. But in their mind, it's 
you're not part of us. You must go back to Japan, right? So were you aware and knowledgeable about the history of APA and Asian American Pacific Islanders when you decided to go to law school? Were you aware of the Chinese Exclusion Act? And you were obviously aware of the internment camps. Was that part of your analysis of being able to help people? No, I mean, I, I, I wish I could say it was. Uh, but, you know, I, I think growing up, I, I did have some knowledge, like you said, uh, internment camps, but, but uh, through college uh, and more exposure uh, to history, not just Asian American history, but in part Asian American history, I became more aware, right, of, mm-hmm. of sort of the yellow peril and uh, conditional belonging. And, and ultimately, I think uh, as I went through college, law school, life, uh, I've become more aware, more attuned to it because it, I think, helps explain uh, if you don't understand sort of the reasoning behind it and, and you just see these rise in hate acts of violence and hate incidents, you don't fully understand what's driving it, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not just, it's not just what's happening with COVID. It is, it, it is a history of acts of violence or intolerance. And so I think you have to fully understand as best you can the history to fully understand the problem to then work on a solution. So what made you want to go to law school? It sounds like you were the first lawyer in your family, so maybe it wasn't a modeled profession for you or a profession where you saw representation of AAPI attorneys. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I guess it's a multi-part answer. Certainly the the influences at that time, you know, the the TV shows included, I think, L.A. Law. And so there were were some um, shows about the legal profession, about being lawyers, uh, that I'm sure influenced me. But you're right. Uh, we, we didn't have lawyers in my family. Uh, and so I think I was the first to go to law school. I thought law school might be a possibility. My, you know, I'm, I'm thinking back. Even in high school, I thought, gosh, what do I want to study and, and what do I want to be when I grow up? And, um, and I thought uh, a lawyer would be a possibility uh, if for no other reason hmm. than I thought lawyers could help people. Uh, my limited knowledge. And so uh, I studied political science at the University of Colorado. uh, And with a poli-sci degree, there aren't a lot of options, but Mm -hmm. law school was part of my path. Once I started college, I thought I'd be going to graduate school and law school was probably the number one choice. But when it comes to the situations that you've dealt with personally, because I'm sure that throughout your life, especially growing up in Colorado, it was prevalent or it was you were aware of the fact that you weren't white in Southern Colorado. Did that have an impact on you in any way when when you dealt with those situations of feeling othered, of feeling like you didn't belong? You know, I, I've had isolated incidents, uh, but but I'll say, you know, my upbringing, my family had been there for four generations. So I, we weren't new immigrants. So my experience was a little different that my, you know, my grandparents and my dad and then my family and my three brothers, I mean, we were, we, we'd been there. So we were much more established than I think for, uh, that, that perhaps new communities might experience. I didn't necessarily experience that. So, you know, certainly I, I, uh, I've experienced isolated incidents of, you know, when you're playing sports and someone says something racist and you just deal with it. But, but I will say I loved growing up in the San Luis Valley and I felt more support than othered. 
And so uh, that That's that amazing. example, yeah, I, and the San Luis Valley, and, and I'll say Colorado, I think is a special place. I mean, there's a reason why I wanted to move back to Colorado. And so certainly um, while I've experienced intolerance, uh, I will say that growing up in the valley, I've, I've felt more support than mm-hmm. intolerance, and I'm fortunate in that. And I recognize that part of that is probably my family history for being there so long. But I'll also say that, you know, there there is a history, and I think back to Governor Carr. Can mm-hmm. we talk a little bit about Governor Let's Carr? Let's do it. All right. So um, Governor Ralph Carr, uh, and that's what our Justice Center that houses the Colorado Supreme Court and Colorado Court of Appeals is named after. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's appropriately so because he was the governor of Colorado, a Republican that grew up in a small mining town. Uh, practice law in my neck of the woods in Antonito in the San Luis Valley, huh. uh, and then rose sort of to political prominence. A great governor for Colorado, was even asked to run as vice president uh, for the Republican Party, which I think he turned down. Uh, and so extremely popular, but he had principles. Mm-hmm. And so when the first the curfews against the Japanese Americans and singling out, singling out Japanese Americans, he was one of the few politicians, one of the few leaders to speak out against singling out Japanese Americans uh, because he recognized that singing, singling out American citizens because of something like race could also ultimately affect others, including himself, right? And so mm-hmm. he said that was wrong, and he spoke out against the singling out. He spoke out against the internment camps, and ultimately it cost him his political career because it wasn't a popular stand. It was a principled stand. And so, you know, looking back, and even though Colorado had one of the internment camps, right, Mm -hmm. because of his principles and his stance for what was right, for the rule of law, and and really just what was right, uh, I think Coloradans smartly named uh, their justice center that houses their highest court uh, in our state after Governor Ralph Carr. And so... I think it's not just the Valley. I'm pretty proud about some of our leaders and what they've done historically to do the right thing, not the popular thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think that's what makes this place special. I'm hearing a lot of your passion for Colorado, your passion for your family from the San Luis Valley, your passion for the leaders that we've had here in Colorado and been fortunate to have. I know that you went to CU Boulder for college. But you went to D.C., it sounds like, for law school. So what was the transition from CU and Colorado to Washington, D.C.? Was there a reason why you decided to go out of state for law school? I think it was the recognition that that all I knew was Colorado. I knew I I wanted, probably needed to experience uh, other places more. Uh, And so grew up in a small town. I remember going to CU, University of Colorado in Boulder, was, was overwhelming. Uh, I had a pretty tough first year. I mean, small town kid in the, quote, big city, and that was Boulder. And I know we laugh now that we live in Denver, <laughs> is, um, was quite the experience uh, to me. Some good, but, but a lot of it was a struggle that first year until I, I started to get comfortable and confident again in myself. Uh, and so I think I wanted to explore and learn and, and push myself to, to live and experience other parts of the country. And so when I... Um, uh, I had some good advice from one of my political science teachers that applying to grad school is a little bit like gambling. So mm-hmm. uh, I know it costs money to apply to each law school, but trying to apply, try to apply to as many law schools as you can in areas that you know you want to live and be and attend school. And so I applied to twelve. I think it was twelve. That's a healthy dozen. It was. It was 
waste of a lot of money. <laughs> but um, but I did get into one of my dream schools, and that was Georgetown. Good gambling. Thanks. Thanks. You're right. Uh, and so I was deciding between University of Colorado and Georgetown for law school. Mm-hmm. And because I only really had known Colorado except for a couple vacations, I decided to move to Washington, D.C., uh, which was fantastic. Um, much bigger, um, more diverse than Colorado. Mm-hmm. Pros and cons, but I, w- I would not have done anything different, uh, attending Georgetown Law School. And then my last semester, I spent a few months in Tokyo studying Japanese law uh, at Temple Law, Japan, before moving back to Colorado for a clerkship with with one of my heroes, Mary Malarkey. So tell me a little bit about Justice Malarkey. Um, So I came back. She was not Chief Justice when I started my clerkship. I believe she was elevated to Chief Justice uh, during my clerkship. So my uh, my clerkship was, and if any law students are listening, please, please, please apply and consider becoming a judicial clerk. I, I think, uh, I don't think there's a better job out of law school. And this mm. goes not just for my colleagues that want to become trial lawyers like I am, uh, but many of my corporate partners at my law firm also clerked because the learning curve is so steep and you have mm-hmm. an instant mentor where you're not joining a law firm or a company where you might get lost in the shuffle. You have Mm -hmm. usually one judge (laughs) and anywhere from one to three co-clerks. And it's a pretty special time where uh, you're all coming from different uh, schools and parts of the country. I think my co-clerks at the time were coming from Harvard, uh, New York, uh, Georgetown. I think I've got that right. Uh, And there were other justices with clerks from across the country, and and it was um, wow. it was a great experience, a learning experience. But Mary Malarkey, um, she taught me so many things. She was she was such a mentor uh, with her reasoning. She was so intelligent, and her writing, her sense of fairness when she was explaining things to me, and and a recognition of of even her past. She was a trailblazer. But Mm -hmm. she didn't brag about that, right? That just wasn't her style. She grew up in, I think, Wisconsin. Uh, She was very humble. But when I asked her about it, she was one of the few women at Harvard uh, at a very different time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and to rise up to sort of where she did, uh, I know that was uh, overcoming stereotypes and barriers that just simply, they existed. But she didn't so much complain about them when she was talking to me. She just recognized they existed. And then uh, through her life, her career, her mentorship, she helped take down some of those barriers. And so she's somebody that uh, uh, I hope I become a little bit, a little bit of. I think you have, (laughs) which we will get to. (laughs) What other mentors did you have throughout your life or your legal career, people that you looked up to that really kind of helped you in paving your own path? I've been fortunate to have so many mentors, really fortunate. It goes back to the the theme for me that I've been lucky, that I've always felt more support uh, than than doubt, right? Certainly there are doubters uh, or haters, to use some slang, um, <laughs> but I think there are many more folks that I was lucky enough to, to be associated with that we wanted to support each other. And there's a big difference between uh, working with or for someone who believes you can do it but wants to test you and teach you versus doubts whether or not you can do it, 
right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that is such a difference between your chances of success and failure. And so I've, mm-hmm. I, I believe uh, that I've been fortunate to, to cross paths with people that actually believed that I had the skill set to do something, but I was pretty raw. I'm sure many of the people you're interviewing, they accepted and supported me from day one. And, and I felt that support where uh, in a PABA and my 100-year law firm, it wasn't 100 years old when I joined, but it is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I ever had an Asian-American partner, certainly not an Asian-American trial lawyer partner. Uh, and to have a support network of Asian-American attorneys throughout the Denver area where I could confidentially have that, that sounding board uh, was critical to me. And so uh, that in part drives my support to try and, or my work to try and pay that forward with um, other, not just Asian American attorneys, but other attorneys mm-hmm. that are looking for that sounding board, that confidential sounding board that isn't necessarily in that particular organization. Well, I have to tell you that when I was a law student, I think it was 2008, it was my first year in law school. And I had organized a Asian law students happy hour. I invited some people from APABA, from the Asian bar, hoping that, you know, we could just kind of build this community event. And you showed up. I did. (laughs) You showed up. And I remember that you were in the middle of trial and you still showed up. It was really cool. (laughs) Like all of us were going around saying, Kenzo Kawanabe is here. (laughs) 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 So... We had stars in our eyes. Right, right. <laughs> so you mentioned being the first Asian partner of your law firm. You work for Davis Graham and Stubbs. I do. And did you go to DGS right after your clerkship? Uh, you know, I was actually a summer associate there back in law school. Back in oh. 1996. I'm going to date myself. So, <laughs> uh, so I was a summer associate there. And talk about mentors. Um, I remember interviewing with Gail Miller, who then became a judge on the Court of Appeals, mm-hmm. and many others, uh, Charles Castile, Dale Harris, Marty Katz, um, Patricia Peterson, just really good folks, not um, not just folks that I interviewed with, but ultimately one of the reasons I came back to join Davis Graham and Stubbs, and, and one of the reasons I've stayed there, many, many reasons why I've stayed there for over 20 years. I've only had two jobs, my wow. clerkship and working at Davis Graham and Stubbs, and they, um, uh, they've taught me so many things, uh, so many lessons that, again, I, I try and pay forward about not just how to practice law uh, at a high level, uh, but also how to engage and support the community where we live and work. That's, that's just mm-hmm. part of the fabric uh, of that firm um, that started with Dick Davis and, and Mr. Graham and Mr. Stubbs back in the day. And, and I like to think continues today. And so it's part of my responsibility to make sure it continues and support some of our younger attorneys to continue that tradition. So I know that during your career, you've also done some pretty high profile pro bono work. What was that like? Why was that a priority to you? All right. There's a lot in that question. So why was it a priority? Uh, and, and, you know, I, w- I was raised that um, it's not, it's just not a responsibility. It's a it's a privilege to give back. And so uh, plug in where you you can, I think, make the most difference with your skill set, but also your passions. And so figure out what moves you and, and what you want to help make better and, and find others to help you do that. So that's how I was raised. So I think we as lawyers have a special skill set. 
pro bono work is is part of what we do. Um, not not just because we like to do it, uh, but because we should do it, mm-hmm. and that's part of, I think, what we took an oath to do right when we became attorneys mm-hmm. uh, is to include pro bono work, and so uh, I believe that uh, is who we are and and who we're supposed to be, and so I think for me. Uh, pro bono work uh, started at Davis Graham and Stubbs, and I remember uh, one of my partners in particular told me um, that you know he always he just said it. I, I always have a case, a pro bono case uh, that I'm working on, and I can't say that I've always had a pro bono case that I'm working on. But that was part of um, just part of the ethic uh, of where I was working is that's that's what you do mm-hmm. for various reasons. I mean. Uh, some of it is is to help the underprivileged. That's noble, but the recognition that also some of it is to help yourself as a young trial attorney. You don't get to first chair trials. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get to second chair or third chair trials. In a pro bono case, you are the first chair. Uh, I had a supervising partner, but I was driving some of those cases, and so uh, I was able to get some of my best experience uh, early on doing pro bono work, mm-hmm. uh, and that included. Uh, representing a, a refugee from a country in Africa, where um, I believed if 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 we won his claim for asylum, uh, he gets to stay and possibly bring his family over, which is what happened, thankfully. If we lose, uh, he gets deported back to that country where he escaped persecution. Uh, so he's probably jailed uh, again, mm-hmm. perhaps beaten again, perhaps killed like his friend. Uh, and so you know, to, to deal with a case with those types of stakes, uh, where you're, yeah. where you're essentially first chair is, um, it was amazing. Uh, and so, uh, that's an example of a case. Uh, I've handled two asylum cases and then as pro bono partner, I've supported other attorneys that have worked on different immigration matters like, um, credible fear interviews and asylum claims. Uh, I think one of my hardest and most rewarding pro bono cases was probably Lobato versus state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was a case where, um, and, you know, let me take a step back. So where I grew up, uh, Alamosa, we're um, one of the poor areas of the state. And I know I've said that in the San Luis Valley. And the way we fund public education uh, is in part through state dollars, but it's also in part uh, related to the value of property. Uh, and how much money you can raise based on the values of those properties. And so if you live in rural Colorado, your property has less value often uh, than if you lived in maybe Denver Mm -hmm. in certain areas, right? And so as a result, schools uh, are not funded at the same level. In fact, not even close. And so it often depends. I call it, you know, quality of education by zip code. Uh, and, And I think that's unfair. Because I think education, the way it's supposed to be, is the great equalizer. I believe mm-hmm. that. I know my grandparents and your grandparents believe that. Is yep. Education uh, allows us to truly be a meritocracy. But if you're not giving a kid the same resources, the same shot, the same learning, how can you actually call us a meritocracy, right? And so public education is, is a passion, I think, of mine. So I was um, recruited to assist with... Lobato versus state of Colorado, which was, was a constitutional challenge to the way the state funded public education based on the constitutional mandate that the state shall provide a, a quote, thorough and uniform, quote, system of free public schools. And we said that the state in its inequitable funding structure f- is failing the Constitution and ultimately failing our children, uh, which I still believe. 
So the education by zip code. Education by zip code is not is not what the Constitution requires. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was recruited, and then through the Colorado Lawyers Committee and other organizations, helped to recruit twenty volunteer lawyers and paralegals from nine different law firms. Wow. I think we had six lawyers from my firm and maybe two paralegals, approximately, uh, that coordinated a team to represent numerous school districts from uh, poor urban school districts and poor country or rural school districts and some families to bring this massive lawsuit. Was Alamosa part of it? Alamosa was a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, All 14 school districts in the San Luis Valley were a part of it. And so we engaged in this massive pro bono effort led by uh, Kathy Gephardt and Alex Halpern. Uh, Those were the two that recruited me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we essentially conducted discovery, which included, uh, I can't remember how many depositions, well over 100 depositions, hundreds and thousands of thousands of documents. Mm. uh, And we got ready for a five-week trial. I was there every day. And so... um, Where was the trial? Denver District Court. So to sue the state of Colorado, you got to sue in Denver District Court. That's right. Uh, The Attorney General's office, and there were some fantastic lawyers from the AG's office, uh, and frankly, we, we worked well together. I mean, you can imagine you have to cooperate to mm-hmm. get through that kind of discovery and then get through a five-week trial. Uh, and we won. And so the Denver District Court declared the public education finance system unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was, um, it was unbelievable. And, and, and it was the right ruling, uh, mm-hmm. in my biased opinion, of course, <laughs> uh, since I represented the plaintiffs. Uh, and, and it was high profile. So... Uh, many interviews, newspapers, television, things like that, it went up to the Supreme Court and we lost. And in a wow. split decision, four to two, uh, we were overturned. Um, I like to think the the good that came from that case, in addition to the pro bono experience of the attorneys um, and the clients being able to really tell their stories, was I think prior to that, there was a misconception that schools were misspending money that they had all this money and that somehow if they just budgeted right, uh, the kids would get greater opportunities. And, mm-hmm. and I think we were able to show the legislature, the governor, that just wasn't true. I mean, that they were doing uh, the best they could with what they had, but because of the failure of resources, had led to ultimately um, uh, unfair opportunities, particularly those kids that were growing up in poor schools and poor areas of the state, which exists today. Right. And so the legislature um, finally stopped cutting money from the schools. Uh, I don't know how long that lasted. And and unfortunately, we haven't seen a fix to the problem that has existed for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, But from a pro bono experience, I think we as the volunteer lawyers did exactly what we were supposed to do. We are supposed to provide quality representation uh, for those who need it most. And I think that's where we plugged in in Lobato. So it sounds like the Lobato case was obviously a pretty heavy, heavy lifting case with a significantly large team, lots of discovery, argued at the district court, at the Supreme Court. Throughout this time that you also were doing the pro bono for Lobato, you obviously still had a caseload at work, <laughs> I would assume. <laughs> and you were also a leader in the community. How did you manage and juggle all of the balls that you had in the air? So um, not well, <laughs> but I survived. I've got some great partners at my firm. And so they they allowed me essentially to, I must have spent, 
I think over a thousand hours over the two years uh, working on the Lobato case. And they supported me. Uh, they covered, helped cover some of my <laughs> other cases uh, and it really allowed me to do that. And so I'm always in debt to my colleagues at my law firm. Uh, my other commitments, uh, including, I can't remember, but I think I was still on the board of the Denver Foundation. Again, uh, other board members. Um, I, I think I finished being board chair, but other board members certainly, uh, I think, helped help fill some of the void that was created by, by me handling the Lobato case. Um, and, of course, my family. And my family is amazing. And uh, that, that was a stressful time, right? I mean, I'm not actually working um, as much as I should on billable work for the firm, mm -hmm. right? Which translates to income, right? For, for, from, from a law firm. Uh, but, but I was gone a lot. I mean, I was, mm -hmm. I was working and I was at a five week trial. And so uh, my wife and my two girls, they were amazing, supported me. It certainly caused some tension at the household, sure. which we, we talked through. Mm -hmm. And, but ultimately, um, you know, I don't think there was a doubt in their minds uh, that this was the right thing to do. So I had a lot of help, I guess, <laughs> to answer, answer your question. <laughs> you know, and my, and my firm was great. And, and then when the case was over, they, they talked to me politely and said, okay, let's get back to work. <laughs> and so, and I did, right? Yeah. And, I, and it builds that loyalty, Nicole. I mean, I've considered, I've been approached by other companies and other law firms. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why I've stayed at Davis, Graham and & Stubbs. And I think it's, it's the mentorship but it's, it's growing up to now practice with many of the friends that I grew up with. It mm -hmm. makes it a good place for me. So I'm pretty lucky like that. Two jobs during, throughout your entire legal career. <laughs> Two jobs. <laughs> that just means I'm boring. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it means that you're boring because, <laughs> and you know this, I've disclosed this to you. When I was in law school, I would joke that my goal in my legal career was to be on more magazine covers than you, Kenzo Kawanabe. We're going to edit that part, right? We're we will editing. not edit that part. I don't know. <laughs> so at least one inquiring mind wants to know, right. how many magazine covers have I you been on? Not, not many covers, not many covers. Uh, you know, <laughs> you can't see this, but I'm blushing. You can see this. Your listeners can't see this. Uh, I've been I've been fortunate that um, you know I've, I've appeared in certain stories uh, and so that has not hurt my career right to 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 appear in various stories about pro bono and community work and so sometimes it's a bit cheesy I feel awkward about it but if it's if it's if it's promoting community service or helping out folks. Um, I think that's a good message to promote. And when you're talking about being promoted and being talked to and kind of being a part of the media that or being a part of this particular pro bono case that had a lot of media attached to it, I know that that was also in some way some type of publicity. So I'm also interested in your book and how you built your book of business because becoming a partner at a firm is not just doing the work, it's generating the work. Yeah. Um, it's funny. You said my book. I'm like, I didn't write a book. <laughs> oh, book of business. I got it. I got it. But by the way, I have to say that, you know, one of the big supporters uh, for me 
from early on in my career really was the Bar Association, the Denver Bar Association, the Colorado Bar Association. I mean, through various committees and, and efforts, and I've served on each of their boards. Uh, again, I, I, felt, uh, I found many more people who were supportive and welcoming than not supportive or welcoming. And so I think the Bar Association has done a great job about creating a welcoming space for attorneys, including mm-hmm. attorneys of color. Uh, historically, that, that may not have been true, but my experience is that the efforts have been there uh, and, and hopefully are continuing mm-hmm. to be there. And, and publicity, I mean, I still enjoy reading the docket and, yeah. and, the, and the Colorado lawyer uh, and to see who's moving where, who's being elevated, right? It helps connect us. So uh, I worry, I, I don't know if, if the next generation of lawyers are as plugged in into the Bar Association or not. Uh, I just don't know, although I, I do think some of the best energy right now is coming from the YLD, which mm-hmm. makes me pretty excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I'm not just stalling on your question, but I do get to ask you questions, which you can totally cut out. Okay. We'll save a little bit of time for that. <laughs> Book of business was your question. And so uh, one of my mentors, uh, Charles Castile, I asked him the same question. Longtime African-American partner at Davis Graham and Stubbs and, and um, uh, a rainmaker. That's that mm-hmm. slang for he knows how to bring in business. <laughs> and I asked Charles, how do you do this? And, and he said, he gave me a one word answer. He said, relationships. And I think that's true. It is all about relationships. And so ultimately, um, you have to have the skill set. And so I've worked on developing and, and hopefully becoming a really good trial lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, a client doesn't hire you just because you have the right skill set. A client is going to hire you because they trust you. You are an advisor to them. And so true, genuine relationships leads to business. And it's not that you try and form these true, genuine relationships just to get business, because then I would say it's not genuine. Mm -hmm. But true, genuine relationships where I'm providing a service and the client is getting value from that advice that I give, from my skills as a litigator and in court, and ultimately trust my judgment to get them a better result, helps build business and word spreads, right? And so mm-hmm. other people uh, would like to talk to you and, and interview you and give you a chance. So uh, I'm gonna repeat what Charles Castile told me, relationships. I think that's great advice because you might not be the only great litigator out there, but you might be one of the only great litigators who have a genuine relationship with the person you're talking to. Right, right. Can I ask you a question? Absolutely. So you've been so involved yourself on community service, and you're a little younger than me, just a little. <laughs> just a little. <laughs> so I am curious, what, what's your experience growing up as a lawyer in Colorado, and, and specifically with a PABA? as well. My experience honestly has been great, which is something that I don't think I anticipated being a young attorney. And especially I've talked about this before, but I grew up in Colorado. I've been here since middle school all around. And my high school experience in Summit County was really difficult because there just wasn't that much diversity. So I think that during law school and after law school, I wasn't really expecting much. I wasn't really expecting to find a community or to find a collection of people or to really honestly like build a tribe of my own, people that I trust, people that I could call, people that I could vent to. 
And Apapa really provided that for me, even as a law student, which was huge because I am a first generation. My mom is an immigrant. I don't know any lawyers, or at least I didn't when I went to law school. I had never certainly seen an Asian lawyer either or an Asian judge. And so going into law school, I knew that I would have to do some extra work. Maybe I would have to be involved. I would have to um, prioritize maybe doing some types of events, going to events and, you know, kind of, I guess, networking and getting my name out there. But again, what I didn't anticipate was creating these genuine relationships with people and Apapa was a huge part of that. It It is just such a welcoming community of people. And I think there's also something to be said about being in a community of people who have similar experiences to you or similar experience that you do or that you have had. And I had never experienced that before just because it usually was a party of one when it came to you know, the only Asian student or one of the only Asian students up in Summit County. It was really refreshing. It meant a lot to me. And I think that that's also what kept me going a lot of times because I could call up Faye Matsukage and vent to her because I could have coffee with Paul Chan because I could have coffee with you, Kenzo, and (laughs) ask you questions. Um, I was really lost when I came out of law school. I didn't know where I wanted to be. I didn't know what type of attorney I wanted to be. The market was hard because it was 2011 and there weren't that many job opportunities. And in order to not just figure out the path that I wanted to be on, but get on that path (laughs) was really difficult. And I don't think that I could have done it without the mentors that I had and without the relationships that I made in Apaba in particular. That's pretty neat. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, the same mentors, a lot of the same mentors that you mentioned were mentors for me too, because they're still so active and so welcoming and just really, really put in the time to make a difference. Right. Right. Yeah. Not because it necessarily benefits them, right? But exactly. It makes not just the Asian American communities, but the greater community stronger. I think mm-hmm. they believe that. I think I believe that, right? And I'm guessing that's what drives uh, each of us to do what we do now. Well, thank you. And thank you for joining me today, socially distanced. Yes. <laughs> I'll put my mask back on uh, so we can bump elbows, but it's been a pleasure. And thank you for doing this. Absolutely. Special thanks to the Colorado Bar Association and the Denver Bar Association for supporting, promoting, and amplifying these voices in honor of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. My name is Nicole Sparaza, and thanks again for tuning in.